Our scripture today is Revelation chapter 21 uh, to chapter 22, verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first, with, um, the first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third uh, a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase. Hmm, this is fun. The eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, thank you for that. I guess uh, I was neglecting my duty of teaching my family how to say all these things. (laughs) So... Um, this chapter is wonderful. I, I'm so glad to be at the end of Revelation, not because I'm sick of the book of Revelation, but because now, and the gospel is riddled all through scripture. Every passage, every verse is dripping with the gospel. But these last few are pleasant. They're joyous generally. So it is, um, for me, it's nice to not have to come here and hammer people uh, with the word but to know that there's such encouragement in this passage. So let me start with the, re- with the resurrection. So when Christ decides to be resurrected and God decides he's going to resurrect his son and give him a physical body, there's many implications of that. And one of them is that eternity will be a physical existence. Physical. I will not be carried away by and by into the sky to dwell and play harps on clouds. That is not the picture of Scripture. It's a picture of a couple of hymns, but not the picture of Scripture. The picture of Scripture is not that God is pulling people out of the world to make some kind of colony in the sky, but instead, he is populating earth with the colony of heaven. That seems to be what's going on. That we're going to have bodies that, like the physical body of the resurrected Christ, that he walks, he breathes, he eats. That seems to be what we're in line for. And the resurrection when it comes, comes to heal the curse of Genesis 3. And it's not just healing part of it, it's healing all of it. And so every little area where the curse has gone in to sin into the world, all of that brokenness is being healed by the resurrection. And what you see in this chapter is the consequences and the impact and the fallout, if you want to use that language, of the resurrection. That the implication is that God is renewing all things. All things. And this passage shows so much but we're going to limit it to showing how when Christ returns, what he's going to do is restore, well, many things, everything. But specifically, he's going to restore our place, our work, and then his order. Okay? So we'll look at those three things. Restoring our place, or sorry, our place, our work, and his order. So let me start with our place. We have to go quick because there's a lot to be said. Let's start with this bizarre, um, seemingly bizarre measurements of the new earth. John is watching, and he sees from a high mountain the new earth being let down. And it is described with a big cube, 12,000 stadia in every direction as a cube, with walls of 144 cubits, 
and there's 12 gates and there's 12 foundations. Now, some denominations, some, some traditions in church history will say, these are literal numbers, let's translate them. And if you do that, what you end up with is a, is a, a cubic world that is about the size, almost exactly the size of area, if you were to combine Saskatchewan, Alberta, and BC. Okay? Roughly the same square footage. And, but, of course, it's a cube, so it goes up as well. The wall is only 144, which is about 70 yards. So it's a pretty minuscule wall for such a mammoth thing. And then all these gates of 12. Now, I've said this before, we've been working through Revelation where the numbers, in my opinion, and as we've seen, are not statistics, but symbols. If you take them as statistics, okay, but you have some explaining to do. But it's very difficult to take them as statistics when they use, and John and Jesus use, such specific symbolic numbers he keeps using all through Revelation, 12 and 144. So you would have to be ignoring an awful lot to see this, as, I think, as being literal. But when you see it as symbolic, you begin to see what God is doing. That 12 is, and, and 144 are historically and consistently throughout Revelation to be the numbers of the people of God. And so when the dimensions of this city are associated with the people of God, what we're being told is this city is going to be made up of and for the people of God. It's very simple. 12 is the number, but then times 1,000, so many people. But more interesting, I think, than that is the fact that it's a cube. Why is it a cube? Because, you know, if you take this too literally, what you're looking at is a globe with a big lump sticking out of it, right? Which is weird. Or if you're a flat earther, then it's just a flat with a cube. Or maybe it's just a cube. I don't know what the flat earthers would say. But regardless, I think that's the wrong way to approach it because if you look at Scripture, remember, as good exegetes, let's always let Scripture tell us what Scripture means. The only other thing in the entire Bible that's described as a cube is the Holy of Holies. Now, 1 Kings chapter 6, when Solomon is building it for the temple, what happens in the Holy of Holies? It's at the center of the temple, and it's the place where humanity and divinity meet, where there is interaction, where there is, in theory, fellowship. But even in the, in the Holy of Holies, it's limited to once a year, and only one guy comes in with his, um, with his scarf there, uh, with a robe that has the names of the 12 tribes on it. So he symbolically represents all of Israel coming before God. But if you know your history of the Old Testament, then you know that the temple was modeled on Eden. And we've done this here before. So Eden, at its center, had the garden. Remember, Eden is a region. The garden is within the region of Eden. And at the center of that is the tree of life. And so, when we now hear that this new Holy of Holies is being let down, we're seeing that not just the physical place of Israel, of the people of God, is being restored and renewed, but our experiential relationship with God. You see, once you're saved, your relationship with God is renewed. However, your experience of God will be fully, fully restored in this new place where God will dwell and interact with us free, freely. There's no mediator there for us. It's now us individually with God. And that is very important to see because what God is doing is restoring Eden in this chapter. And if you're not sure of it, take a look at the very first words of the chapter that seem to sound a lot like Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And here he opens it by saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So what God is doing is he is saying, I'm going to restore all of creation back to the way it was intended to be. 
All those mandates in Genesis 1 are being fulfilled and renewed here and now. And so this is actually quite a massive thing happening. There'll be no sin, right? There's, I mean, he goes into detail. He will dwell with man. There will be the tree of life at the center, which is what the tree of life was at the center of the garden. And all of eternal life, everything will be restored. But you know what I think is more, almost more beautiful? No, I'm saying more beautiful, but beautiful here. He says there'll be no, um, where was it here? No sin, death, mourning, crying, and pain. But before that, in verse 4, he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, I used to read this and think, all he's saying is there's going to be no more crying. But if that's all he's saying, then why say there's no more crying right afterwards? Is he being redundant? No, I think it's kind of, yesterday we had at home this small incident where my little guy Ezra ran outside and came running back in crying because he saw a snake. Okay, we live in the country. And there's a snake. So he runs in and he's freaking out. And before I went out with a stick to kill the snake, because that's what Adam does, by the way. He should have driven the snake out of the garden. Right? But before I did that, you kneel down and you wipe his tears and say, it's all right, man. Daddy will kill the snake. Don't worry about it. Um, if, I'm sorry if you're a PETA person who thinks I shouldn't kill snakes. Then you'd be very mad. I've killed plenty of snakes. So, but you see what I did? And it's just innate what we do as parents. Before we remove the sin and say, don't worry, you'll never be hurt again, we first comfort the sin and the trouble that has come. And I think this is beautiful. Because God is, comes and he says, when I return, yes, there'll be nothing more that will make you weep. However, you're hurting because you've had a lifetime of pain. Let me comfort you first. And you see him first comforting and then removing. I think it's beautiful. So we see him restoring. The first thing, it's a quicker point. He restoring our place physically, then re- renewing the earth, but also our experience with him. We'll be with him all the time. And this leads into point two, where he restores our work. Because look at those beautiful words in chapter five. Uh, ch- well, this chapter, verse five. Um, says, behold, I'm making all things new. Now, be good Bible scholars. Notice this. Notice the language and what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, behold, I am making all new things. It says, says, I'm making all things new. You see, because God is not coming to trash the world and say, nice try. You made a mess of the world. I'm going to scrap it, and I'm going to rebuild a better one because you can't do it. Because that's the assumption that we often make. Because if that was the case, he'd say, behold, I'm making all new things. All the world you made, I'm going to make a new one because this one sucks. (laughs) You ruined it. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says, I'm making all things new, suggesting very clearly, and it's not just here, it's all through Scripture, that he is going to take the world we've built and renew it somehow, polish it up, clean it, purify it. In fact, if you know, if you all remember the second sermon, we've done 30 sermons in this, chat, in this book. The second one, I made a point of Christ being, having uh, eyes that were flaming and the imagery there being that everything Christ sees, everything God looks at will either be destroyed or purified. And this is the idea here. There's something going on where God is saying, I'm going to make all things new by restoring it. And nobody makes this clearer than an English scholar named N.T. Wright. It's a, ling- it's a bit lengthy. Listen to what he says. You are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or to walk, 
every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human beings, and for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. Now, it's incredible what he's saying. He's, it's not, he's not new, but it's almost like this idea has been buried in the church for a long time. So the idea is that our work, what you do today as Christians, will echo somehow into eternity. It'll exist somehow. And he's not making this up. He gets it directly from a number of places. First one is Revelation, then we'll see where Revelation gets it from. So Revelation here we just read in chapter, verses 24 to 27. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no, no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Jesus, John here is summarizing chapter 60 of Isaiah. I encourage you to read it. I can't read the whole thing. But let me read yet another passage. This is from Isaiah 60, and the references are up here, but I'll, I'll read it. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. He's speaking about the new earth. A multitude of camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold, frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. The ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar. Their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night. They shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress and pl the plain and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. Now, what Isaiah is envisioning about this new earth is a place where, uh, first, the, the, new, the new earth has these gates pointing in every direction, and the nations will stream into it on this new day. The nations being the, the believers in the nations around the world, not the non-believing. And what are they bringing in with them? They're bringing in stuff. Can you imagine? You're going in, and the world's been renewed, and yet your stuff, some of it has stayed. So you're now wheeling with carts and caravans into the, the city of God all the stuff that makes your nation great. So the, the cedars of Lebanon, the ships of Tarshish. Today it might be something like the computers of Silicon Valley, the chocolate of Switzerland, the igloos of Canada, <laughs> whatever it is. You see, when he says that you're bringing in gold and silver, he's not saying they're going to bring in wheel, you know, wheelbarrows full of ore, unrefined minerals. No, it's the works of their hands. There's going to be jewelry and furniture and stuff the things that these cultures individually around the world was the, the, the crowning jewel of their culture, they're now bringing as an offering to God. And what's most remarkable, well, it's two things, lots of things remarkable. One, the things that you build will somehow enter the new heaven. But here's what's interesting. They will not enter them as they are because nothing detestable or sinful will enter. So we have an issue because if the ships of Tarshish are going to somehow get to this new earth, um, how? Because they're the ones that were used for war and to carry slaves. The wealth of the nations was used to corrupt and to often kill the people of God. Right? The, the cedars of Lebanon were to make crosses on them where you hung people to die. So 
How is it? And, and that's the negative side, but even think of the best we build. The best businesses we build, we may want to help the world with Amazon, but you're harming the world a great deal as well. So if everything we build, as per Exodus 20, has the remnants of our sin on it, then how could God accept it in this world? Well, he says it in Isaiah. He's going to, they shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. And again, right afterwards, I will make the place of my feet glorious. What happens is this. We bring our sin-riddled offerings to God. He puts them on the altar, and then he renews them. And he says, I will take the stuff you've made because you're my children and I love everything you put your hands to. But it cannot reflect the glory of God like this. And you're going to see that in a minute. Why? So I need to purify it. So it'll be put on the altar. And then much like everything else, as N.T. Wright says, somehow through the resurrecting power of Christ, even our works will be raised so that what we've built will be perfected and will show up somehow. So you and I don't build the kingdom. The king builds his kingdom but you and I somehow build for the kingdom. This is the imagery here. And it's mind-blowing to me. So how does he restore our work? And I'll use an example I think I've used here a year ago, maybe. I don't know. And it comes from a story, a short story written by Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings writer, called Leaf by Niggle. And in this story, um, what's going on is that here's the general idea. Leaf, uh, or Niggle, is a guy who's an, he loves art, he loves to paint. But, but life is such that he doesn't have enough time to paint. He's busy and he's bogged down with the weight of the world. So he spends his entire life trying to paint a tree. And he does as good a job as he can, but because life is short, he dies before it's finished. And he's now in the next world, and he's on a train. And as he's on the train, he sees in the distance his tree. So he gets off the train and he runs over to this tree and hears what Tolkien writes. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished, if you could say that of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he had, never, he had ever labored at were there as he imagined them rather than as he had made them. And there were others that had only budded in his mind and many that might have budded if only he had had time. And what Tolkien is getting at brilliantly is... Here's Nigel. Here's you and I in this life. We're trying to do something. It doesn't matter if you're a stay-at-home mom. Let's get rid of this idea that some work is dignified and some work is not. All work belongs to God. All work glorifies God. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor or you're a barista or whatever you are. Let's stop this silly hierarchy stuff. And all of it has glory. But all of us go into our work. It doesn't matter if you're making Tim Hortons coffee or if you're a lawyer or a prime minister Whatever you're doing, you all have felt this at some point where you say, gosh, I can't quite do what I want. I want to build a better government, as I think most of our politicians do, but they can't. They can never quite get it right, even the best of them. As parents, don't you want your kids to be better? And then when they grow up, you realize, oh my goodness, look how riddled they are with my sin. Like I can see Carl in my kids, which is terrifying. But you, you try, you build a workplace, you build a church, and you say, you, if you're an artist, you write a song, and you're like, it's almost there, but I can't quite articulate what I want to articulate. I can't hit the keys the way I'd like. I can't do this. And you always fall just short. And what Tolkien is saying, that imperfection will find its perfection in the new earth, but it's not just there. He sees his tree, and somehow what he builds will echo in, and God uses it to populate the new earth. But when he gets there, what's wonderful about Nigel is he sees it and he realizes 
Oh my goodness, it's better than I ever could have done. It's what I always imagined but could never get right. And if you read the rest of the story, you realize he says, and then beyond it, I see a forest with lots of leaves left to be painted. So that his work not only echoes, but there's more work to do in the next world. And this idea of, of us working is so important because all the work we do, paid and not paid, echoes the goodness of God. If you are at home and you're cleaning up your house, you are holding back the forces of chaos. Quite, I mean, that sounds, that sounds grand, but it is. Chaos is that which threatens order. And trust me, if you don't clean your house and you have six kids, chaos dominates the home very quickly. And so even putting away a bowl is God-honoring because you're doing the work of Adam, pulling the weeds and Eve, pulling the weeds that come and choke out the good. Every work of cleaning, doing laundry, loving people, caring for people, driving well, doing your job, whatever it is, all of it, if it's for God, is holding back the weeds. And all of this as a result is God's work. And you don't know how it's going to impact. See, Niggle couldn't have known what his painting would look like. You probably don't have a clue, like, what the heck, how does my job in any way, how's this going to ever echo and reverberate into eternity? I don't know. But we're told it is going to. And that somehow, that job, I mean, N.T. Wright uses one example too, where he says, imagine you were given this task of just hewing large stones out of a mountainside. And all you're told to do is, don't worry, we're building something. Just make these rocks this size and smooth. And you spend your whole life doing it, your whole life. And you eventually have retired. You're no longer strong enough to hew them. You go into the town and you see, hey, there's a beautiful cathedral. So you walk into it. And as you walk into it, you say, man, look at this beautiful place. Who could have built this? And then you notice that one of the stones looks a lot like the ones you made. And then you realize all that work that you had done and you had no idea what it was doing was being trusted to a master architect who knew what to do with it. And it's almost as if God loved you so much. Not as if, he does. So much that, think of this uh, this way. And I have kids, this is why it's coming up this way. Imagine everything you do as a Christian, everything produces in the heavenly realm somehow a piece of Lego. A random piece. It, could, you don't know, it, it might be dirty, it might be jagged, it may not, you may make a sword, you may make a big block, a skinny one, a flat one, you don't know. And God is up there collecting all of the things his children are doing for him. And he says, listen, you've made a mess of things, but watch what I can build out of all of this. And so you find that your good works and your faith and your prayer and your everything somehow is being used to make this world. He is the builder. He builds the kingdom, but he uses, by grace, the things we build at times. And this idea restores the idea of, of, um, of, of work. If you begin to see your work the way the Bible speaks of work, which is why I focus so much on the, the intersection of faith and work, we have the class here, is because all of our work, you, holy work isn't being a pastor. Stop it. Stop it. Don't become a pastor. Please. We have enough pastors. Unless you're really called to it, of course. <laughs> but people often say to me, Carl, do I have to be, I'm, I'm a Christian, shouldn't I work in a corporate, uh, a Christian nonprofit? No. Why? If God calls you to it, okay. But our job is to be in the world, serving the world, and building for God's glory. Because we see this city to come, and we try to replicate it here as best we can. Now, much more, but I can't. Let me move on to the third and final point. He's restored our, our place, our work, but now he's restoring his order. Have you noticed... Maybe you did. Um, 
God is restoring order to the universe, and it's going to be firm and final when he returns. And there's this continued reference in this passage to things being transparent. Did you notice that? It's, the streets are pure gold, but like glass. What's that? Like, how can something be pure gold but glass? How come the, why the emphasis on transparency four different times? Okay? Because is he building this? Is he building Superman's uh, Fortress of Solitude? Who knows Superman? Remember that? He, so Superman needs to be alone, so he builds this ice palace in the middle of the, of the Arctic. Um, is that what he's building? Just transparency? Transparency? That's, again, if we take it literally, but I think if you take it literally, you're missing so much here. Let me explain. So, first, we know that this new heaven and new earth will be filled with God such that there isn't a need for the sun and the moon. It may still be there. Those may be there. But there's no need for them because God's glory shines, his doxa in Greek. It shines out into everything. Then we're told that everything in the city is transparent, but not entirely transparent. Because he refers to the word that is lithos in, in the Greek, it, it's quartz. Now, if you know anything about if you know anything about stones, just Google types of quartz and you're gonna see something incredible. But quartz is a sort of crystal that depending on the impurities in the mineral will be different colors. You may get red, like carnelian and jasper, or you may get green or darker like onyx. And so all of these colors, what you're seeing is something that is transparent but tinted different colors, like stained glass. And if everything in the new earth is like a stained glass and the glory of God is shining through it, then what we're being told is this. Everything that is holy and built by and for God reflects and shoots out his glory. It doesn't draw attention to itself, but God is able to pass through it. So everything we build, if it's holy, reflects and shows God. He can shine through what we build. It's incredible, isn't it? So he's going to take our opaque creations, the things that we make that we mean to be good, but they're just not transparent enough because of our sin. It keeps it from being so transparent that God can shine through it. But in the new heaven, in the new earth, everything that God refines will be crystal-like. But imagine it being like stained glass with light shining through. Could you imagine the splendor of it? So here we have the glory of God pushing through all of our works to make this incredible place. And this is entirely what he is pointing at here that God will take all of those things, you know, you and I are the impurities in the courts. That, that particular Carl personality or Joe personality, whoever's personality, will be there in that thing you made, but shining and shot through with the glory of God. And all of what we built will be somehow purified like this. It's an absolutely incredible idea. And to capture a little bit of what it means, let me use my final quote, a few of them this time. Um, this one is another Tolkien quote, but it comes from Lord of the Rings, the final book. And here we have Samwise Gamgee, the friend of Frodo, who, after a long, terrible journey, he's finally seeing his friend Gandalf that he thought was dead. And he's, he's finally seeing some light, and here's what Tolkien writes. But Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last, he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, to the, listened, sorry, listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It felt upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever, never known, ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then, as a sweet rain will pass down, 
down a wind of spring, and the sun will shine out the clearer. His tears ceased, and his laughter welled up, and laughing, he sprang from his bed. How do I feel? he cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, and he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter, and sun on the leaves, and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I ever heard. And this is what awaits. This idea that everything sad is coming untrue. And that everything we look at, we can't, I, we can't explain it. But this idea that it's almost like I've never heard laughter. All this weary life, and some people have had weary lives. There'll be laughter. And there'll be joy. Like sun on a leaf. I can't even, I'm not a leaf. I, I like the winter. But what must it be like for a leaf to finally get sun on it after a long winter, right? And this idea is what is here. Imagine a world where human nature and sin no longer resist our efforts. When you go, I don't even know, I can't even explain, I don't know, other than to just give you the, the bullet points. What's it going to be like to try to make a work of art when there's no lack of perception and ability and skill to stop you from making it exactly the way you want? What's it going to be like to plant a garden and not have to pull a weed and have the ground never resist your efforts? What's it going to be like to do this? I don't even know. I have no clue, but I'm looking forward to it. And we should be looking forward to it. If you, uh, I mean, we'll have Jesus physically present as well, not just spiritually. And listen, Christ is as close to us as he ever was to anyone. He's in us. But the experience of that relationship will be different. And that's clearly put, uh, laid out in Scripture. And we look forward to this all things new happening. And if you're a Christian then, this idea, like I said, gives you, ought to give you not just hope and joy for the future, but should transform now. Where you now look and say, would I do this thing with my day and with my life if I knew it was going to somehow be in heaven, in the new earth? Because now you're not just building for yourself. Your work, I know people can sometimes feel, and I've heard them say it at this church and everywhere, I work to support my ministry. I work to support my hobbies and my leisure time. I, I do understand that. I've had crummy jobs. I have. However, that is not a biblical approach to work. The biblical approach to work is all work is to glorify God. And if that's the case, imagine how much junk you could take at your work. Imagine how that would change if you thought, oh, it's good enough to submit. If you know it's going to God. And this idea that what you do will linger is important. And it should fuel us to be better. We should be the best of citizens in this world because of the one that we have coming to us. So that's for Christians. If you're a skeptic, boy, doesn't this satisfy what you always believed? Doesn't every skeptic in the world, and I know them, I was one of them, doesn't every skeptic think their job matters? Well, listen, if you're an atheist, your job doesn't matter. Sorry, it doesn't. But you deep down know it does matter. That's why atheist friends of mine will say, I was meant to be a teacher. No, you weren't, not if there's no God. You're just doing whatever. But if you're a God, that inkling, that understanding, that belief that we all have, that our jobs matter, is only satisfied in the God of the Bible. And if that's the case, run to him and start working for him, and you'll find all these other things thrown in as well. With that, let's pray.